This is the word of God, so let us be pleased to hear it. <clears throat> Beginning Romans 5, verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace which is by one man, Jesus Christ, had abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift, for the judgment was by one to condemnation. But the free gift is many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in the life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. <clears throat> and my text as well is from First uh, John chapter 2, verse 1c. Jesus Christ the righteous. Let us pray, Heavenly Lord, we are thankful to be here tonight, to sup upon thy word. Uh, it is our delight. Delight in us as we uh, look into thy word and listen to it, read and, and preached upon. Uh, be with us, Lord, be with all of us. In your name we pray. Amen. So what are we talking about what is the Apostle speaking of? Uh, what is the Holy Spirit telling us when we talk about justification, uh, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us? Is it something that just is, a, is an automatic thing that God did for the elect? In other words, there are some people that he chose from the, before the foundation of the world that he elected unto salvation, and so he imputed right, he declared righteousness unto them. And certainly that is true as far as it goes, but there's something more 
uh, in, in terms of understanding righteousness that we need to know. There, is, there was really righteousness here. A righteousness not our own, alien to us, but a righteousness nonetheless which was achieved, if you will. And by that achievement that Jesus did and accomplished, God declared it to us, reckoned it to us. And so when we speak about the righteousness of Christ, imputed to us, what we are really speaking about is the obedience of Jesus Christ imputed to us. His obedience showed up as perfect righteousness. And that righteousness, that obedience imputed to us is what we talk about when we speak of justification. Romans 5 verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners. Right? We all agree to that. Do we not? We all agree that Adam and Eve fell. They were put out of the Garden of Eden. They were totally depraved at that point. Sinners. They became darkened in their understanding. Their righteousness disappeared into unrighteousness or changed into unrighteousness. Their holiness was no more. And as a result of their sin, the guilt of their sin, because Adam represented the entire human race, Adam and Eve had the entire human race in their loins, so to speak, their guilt, the guilt of that first sin was imputed to all their posterity. They could not give birth to a righteous man or woman, to a righteous child. All their children coming from their loins outside the garden of paradise into the world of darkness were thrust and the mark of sin we call original sin was upon each and every child. The proof of that is as they grow older the sinful nature which they also inherited from their parents manifested into all kinds of sin. The fact that they're born in sin, marked as sinners, totally depraved, is proven every single day of their life as the child grows old, older in manifesting that sin through their nature. So even as many, so as one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Even as many are reckoned or constituted or made sinners by the disobedience of Adam, so many are reckoned or constituted or made righteous by the obedience of Christ. Christ is our representative. His obedience called his righteousness was imputed to us. 
The Belgic Confession in Article 22 says it this way, but Jesus Christ imputing to us all his merits and so many holy works which he has done for us and is in our stead is our righteousness. Can I repeat that? But Jesus Christ imputing to us, imputing to us all his merits and many holy works which he done, which he did for us. And in our stead is our righteousness. That is a perfect righteousness. And we're going to talk more about that. I want to speak more on that. I want to talk about the testimony of the Gospels concerning the obedience of Christ. I also want to speak on the testimony of his disciples concerning the obedience of Christ. And finally, I want to talk about the testimony of heaven and earth concerning the obedience of Christ. Because it's his obedience, his perfect obedience that brought about that righteousness. That is called the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Christ, Jesus Christ, the righteous. <coughs> now, you know the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <clears throat> The Gospels say precious little, if anything, about justification. You won't find it. Except perhaps in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. You remember Jesus said of the publican that he went home justified? But beyond that, or beside that, there's really nothing in the gospel that speaks of justification. Why not? Because the gospels speak about the life of Jesus Christ and a portion of that life, right? They say precious little, if anything about his early days. He was born, Bethlehem, fled with his parents from Herod. 12 years old, he's in the temple questioning and talking to the teachers there and they marvel about that but very little is is talked about his life it's communicated about his life in those early days mainly the ministry the, the last three years of his life about that maybe three or four a little over three And mainly his sufferings. That's prominent in all the Gospels. The sufferings of Jesus Christ. So it's certainly the Gospels are not an accounting or a history of the life of Jesus from cradle to grave. But they focus in, they hone in on something else. Also, you want to point out, uh, you, want, you, you want to make note of the fact that the Gospels do not speak about the life of Jesus in order to give us a model for holy living, which some have taken. 
The Gospels do not do that. Rather, the Gospels speak about Jesus Christ, the heavenly, the heavenly one. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. How God was going to justify the ungodly through the work and the accomplishments of the life of Jesus Christ, his, his dear son, our Savior. And so, when we open the gospel and read of Christ's life, his preaching, his miracles, his travels, his encounters, his dialogues, his sufferings, and offering up of himself to the death of the cross, we are reading of the obedience his obedience. And that obedience is what has saved us. For he had life. He is life, right? And he gives that life to us by justifying us. He is the life. And by his life, we are justified. We are made righteous. We are given the abundant life. We are saved. And so, as one writer put it, everywhere he went, step by step, whether as a 12-year-old traveling from Nazareth to the Passover in Jerusalem, or as a, an adult journeying through Judea, Samaria, and the distant reaches of Galilee, he was about his father's business, especially during the last three or four years of his life when he publicly discharged his office as the mediator of the covenant. He was consciously fulfilling all righteousness on behalf of all whom the father had given him. He gave himself. He lived his life. He obeyed all the law perfectly for us. And his perfect obedience... is what has been imputed to us as righteousness. We didn't do it. He did it all. To God be the glory. And especially, we need to focus, it, it, it all comes to a climax, if you will, at the cross. So it's his life of obedience, the cross in particular, which is the climax of his obedience, obedient unto death and then the resurrection. And this all pertains to our justification. Let's uh, appreciate this from the viewpoint of the disciples. Now, John, in his first epistle, says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. An amazing thing, right? The disciples were the closest people to him. And John in particular, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was probably the most intimate of all the disciples to him. And the closer he came to Jesus the greater the relationship between them developed, the more he saw the righteousness of Christ, the more he saw the, perf the perfect man that Jesus was and how perfect in obedience he was. You know, when you think about it, consider yourselves. The closer you get to someone, the more unrighteous he becomes or she becomes, the more you see the blemish 
The more you see the, the faults and the flaws, the spots, the imperfections. But with Jesus, the closer they came to him, the more righteous he became. Quite the reverse. Because again, we have seen him, we have heard him, we have touched him, we have handled him. And the closer we got to him, the more we came to know him, the more we loved him for his obedient life and his righteousness. The more pure he, he appeared to us. And as I said, it's not the case in each one of us. The, more, the closer we get to one another, the more we see sin and fault and error. <clears throat> this whole idea of justification according to the obedient life that Christ merit for us and imputed to us, the more we realize that salvation belongs to the Lord. There is no possibility for us ever becoming like this. For we're not talking about a mere man, an earthly man. We're talking about a man from heaven. A heavenly man. A perfect man. Walking as the light in a world of darkness. And he distinguished himself because of his righteousness, because of his obedience to the Father. Everywhere he went, everything he said, every word he spoke, every act he took was doing his Father. He was busy with his Father's business, about his Father's business. His whole life was about his Father and doing the work that God, his Father, had sent him to do. And so we talk about the obedience unfolding before the eyes and ears of the disciples. We realize that these disciples were kind of examining him, if you will, contemplating him according to the word of God. Because the disciples all knew the word of God. They knew the Old Testament. They knew the psalm. And so you go to Psalm 1, for example. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Jesus never walked in the counsel of the ungodly. Nor, uh, nor stands in the way of sinners. Jesus did not stand with sinners. He, he did not pal around with sinners in their sinful ways. Nor sit in the seat of the scornful. He didn't mock. He didn't tell bad jokes or speak in, in dirty words. And then you go on to, uh, to the Psalms, uh, and he says, Who, he that walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. That's exactly what Jesus did as we came to know him. He, he, his walk was upright. His his work was righteous. He spoke the truth and nothing but the truth from his heart. He didn't backbite with his tongue. 
He didn't take up an evil comment against his neighbor. He didn't take a reproach. He didn't hear it. He didn't listen to it. He didn't want to hear the gossip or the backbiting or anything like that. He never put his money towards usury. He didn't uh, take up a reproach against an innocent person. He never did anything wrong. And the more they intimate the relationship, the closer they came to him, the more they understood that this man, this Jesus, is a perfect man. Mm. And in no way did he do harm to anyone. Consider the commandments of God. Thou shalt love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Did Jesus love his Father with all his heart, soul? Yes, he did. His sole motivation throughout the day in everything was the love of his Father. And love the neighbor as himself. He did not dishonor his parents, but he was patient with Mary and Joseph, who were imperfect. He never sinned against them. He never was impatient with them. He never spoke against them or yelled at them or worse. He was accused of blasphemy, but he never blasphemed the Lord at all, or God the Father. He he only spoke wonderful things, wonderful truths about God, about his Father in heaven. He didn't, he was accused of breaking the Sabbath day. He didn't break the Sabbath day. Every opportunity he went to synagogue and he either listened to the word or he spoke the word at synagogue. He never broke any of the commandments in the sight of anyone. No one could charge, uh, make a charge against him. <clears throat> Remember when they tried to trap him with his own words by saying he is uh, seditious, he's an enemy of state, he's a troubler of Rome, and they marveled at his comment because he recognized the civil authority and he recognized the authority of God. And he said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and render to God that which is God's. Recognizing the authority of both. And they have their place. <clears throat> Never did even the smallest inclination contrary to God's commandment arise in his heart. Yes, he despised sin. He rejected sin, but he loved righteousness. Mm. The disciples watched as Jesus was constantly opposed by foes, but he never lost his temper. Remember the meekest man, the meekest man on the earth, Moses, lost his temper at the people and the accusations. And he says, you want water? Remember in the desert? And he smote the rock twice because then the rock was Christ. He never lost his temper. He never lost his cool, as we say. 
but he was always steadfast and true concerning the word. He, was, uh, he didn't become like a city that was broken down and without walls, <clears throat> but he comes as one who takes the city. No idle word passed through the door of his lips. Not one thought of his heart went astray. A grumbling and complaining spirit was not, he never complained. Forty days in the desert without food, he didn't emerge complaining one bit. When he was given those stripes, by his stripes we are here, when he was given those stripes for sins he did not commit, he did not complain, he did not grumble, he did not accuse back. Only holiness, pure, undefiled, proceeded from his heart. When we talk about the righteousness of Christ, we're talking about his life of obedience. His life of commitment to the word of God. And to the commands of God. His attitude. The disciples must have uh, beheld with wonderment as in all his eating, drinking, walking, conversing, preaching, teaching, healing, correcting, chiding, condemning, and praying, his every syllable and breath were most excellent and pure. As one writer put it, whether before friend or foe, whether sitting on a boat or hanging on a cross, whether in making wine at a festive wedding or making a whip in a filthy temple, whether weeping at a grave or praying in a desert place, whether in taking a dead daughter by the hand to bring her back to life or in opening up his palms to the nails of Rome, whether in being anointed with expensive anointment, uh, ointment while reclining in a house or in being reproached and slandered by unnumbered foes. Who would do him wrong? His heart was always beating moment by moment, beat after beat, in harmony with God's. 